You're listening to To Succeed, Just Let Go, a podcast that'll change how you think and change your life. I'm Willie Horton and I'm a psychologist. I've been helping people change their lives since 1996. Broadcasting from the French Alps and delighted to have you along. Let's take this week's step in the right direction. I need to pick up on last week's podcast episode because, to my horror, I noticed after I had finished it and put it up online, I said I would come back to something during the course, but I never came back to it. If you recollect, or if you haven't heard it, maybe you want to go and listen to it before you listen to this, but if you recollect, I mentioned that somebody had talked to me about how he was unable to trust himself. The individual in question had said to me, and I quote, I've made a number of harebrained decisions over the last couple of months, and I can't trust myself to make a decision any longer. I went on to make the point that, of course, you can't trust yourself to make the right decision if the decisions are being thrust upon you by your own conceptual self. Uh, I said I would come back to explain what I meant by that. Actually, the word I used last week was forced. And you might be wondering, what do I mean? That, uh, you know, decisions I've made were forced on me by me, were forced on me by some part of me. Surely I'm man enough or woman enough to be able to make up my own mind for myself. A couple of months back, I was talking with a client who had asked somebody who worked for her to do something and subsequently discovered on checking it that it hadn't been done. And then she checked it again and it still hadn't been done. And she said to me, I was a fool for trusting this person or is that a terrible thing to say? And the point I made to her is that you shouldn't have trusted that person in the first place. Why would you trust a person who is incapable are not in the position of trusting themselves. That's my friend, the person who said, I can't trust myself anymore. He was right, of course, because the decisions that he had made were made by thinking through what he needed to do using his thinking mind, which filtered everything that he was thinking about through his own conceptual self, or if I can put it another way, through his own preconceived misconceptions about his own inadequacy. I need to keep going back to the conceptual self. I need to keep going back to how that conceptual self was formed. We know from previous conversations that it was formed during our formative years, obviously, if you think about it. We know that it was formed by us taking psychological snapshots in particular of things that were done to us, not for us, to us, things that made us feel bad about ourselves. In other words, the conceptual self is always skewed negatively. But even if it was skewed positively, it's still only a concept or an amalgamation of concepts. It isn't you. It's who you think you are. It is, I suppose, your traveling companion or has been your traveling companion up to now. But unfortunately, unlike many companions that you think you have, and I might come back to that one again. Unfortunately, unlike many traveling companions that you might have, your conceptual self doesn't have your best interests at heart. The only thing it has at heart is your survival. So therefore, if you want to say, for example, lose weight, your conceptual self is actually going to stand in your way. 
If you want to be bold and brave and make some decisions, say to set up your own business, the conceptual self is going to stand in your own way. That's why so many people say to me, I feel as if I'm my own worst enemy or I'm getting in my own way. Yes, you are. Or actually the person who isn't there, the conceptual self, the one you imagine to be there, is the person getting in your own way. Now, as I said last week, the person who isn't there, the conceptual self, the person you think you are, has got you to where you are. At least you haven't fallen down dead. And there's a reason for that. As I said a minute ago, the conceptual self is preoccupied with your survival. Well, that's not good enough. We don't want to survive. We want to thrive, don't we? We want to live our lives to the full, or at least I would hope that you want to live your life to the full. If you don't want to live your life to the full, you're a bigger fool than I thought you were in the first place. And by that, I mean anybody who's using their mind in the normal way, allowing the conceptual self to sully every moment of every day by distancing them from every moment of every day is a fool, or certainly they're a fool once they know. You know because you're listening to this. You know because the conceptual self is the accumulation of thoughts that I mentioned a minute ago, the arbiter of everything that you feel about everything, including yourself. It is the arbiter of every decision that you make. And as arbiter, it actually uses information that it learned decades ago. If it was a jury, it would be using evidence to find you guilty or not guilty from some crime that was committed and tried 30, 40, 50 years ago. Nothing to do with what's going on in the here and now. And that is what I meant about having your conceptual self force decisions on you. Let's explain how it actually works in actual, unfortunately for most people, everyday practice. Should I say what I need to say to my boss? Should I say what I need to say to my partner? Should I say what I need to say to someone who is annoying me or bullying me? Now, that's actually quite a simple question. Those three questions I've just mentioned, should I say something? But you have to make a decision as to whether you're going to say what you need to say or not. In order to make that decision, you weigh up the pros and cons through the lens of your conceptual self. The first thing that the conceptual self will use by way of evidence, if I can put it like that, the first thing it'll weigh up in whether or not you should say what you know deep down you need to say, will be how you feel about yourself. And we don't really need to go much further in terms of the madness of it all when you consider that that is the first step that the conceptual self would go through because you don't feel good about yourself. That is how, as we said a couple of weeks ago, people are suffering from perceived low self-esteem, lack of self-confidence, all that nonsense, because nonsense it is, because it all comes from the conceptual self. So if the first port of call for the conceptual self in weighing up whether or not you should say what you know you need to say is what you think about yourself, you're already flummoxed. You've already floored yourself. But say you got over that hurdle and said, well, right, I, I, I don't feel good about myself or I feel inadequate or I feel that what I am going to say isn't really the kind of thing I would say my, uh, myself because I do feel inadequate. Say you got over that hurdle and then you say to yourself, well, actually, I'm going to say what I need to say. 
The next port of call for the conceptual self will be, what will the other person think of you when you say it? Now, the other person isn't the other person either, because the other person is actually operating from their conceptual self too. So we're actually talking about two people evaluating each other, neither of whom is there. So you're getting deeper and deeper into the mire of thought that is unrelated to the reality of what's going on and the reality of what you would like to achieve. Or if you want to live your life to the full, what you must achieve by ensuring that you manage your way through life and do and say what you need to do and say daily, moment to moment. The conceptual self in evaluating this second stage of evaluation will say, well, what if the other person thinks bad of me? That'd be horror of horrors to the conceptual self because the conceptual self, as, as we've said before, is always going around seeking approval. So this is an immediate no-no for the conceptual self. But say you get over that hurdle, right? So now you get over the first two major hurdles, which by the way, you're unlikely to get over if you're using your mind normally. The third port of call for the conceptual self will be, does this push you in danger? Now, the conceptual self will ask that question in a very peculiar way. It'll ask that question based on the manner in which our minds evolved to see threats round every corner, even when threats are not there. And because our minds evolved that way, the conceptual self will ensure that you don't do anything that would give rise to a potential threat. Let me put it in even simpler English. You will never do anything or you will never say anything that might make you feel uncomfortable. Because in doing so, you'd have to stick your neck out, put your head above the parapet. You'd have to step outside your comfort zone. And we're designed to never do that. So even in something as simple as making a decision, will I say or won't I say, the conceptual self will always force a thought through decision on you, where the thought through or the thinking through process has gone through two or three phases that are designed to enable you keep your mouth shut, keep your powder dry, keep your head down, suffer in silence and get on with surviving. Bigger decisions, of course, come along from time to time as well. Will I set up a business? You know, I'd love to set up a business. I'd love to work for myself. You know, the number of people who have said to me, I'd love to work for myself. The one thing they're all looking for, by the way, is a bit of freedom. Freedom from the corporate grind. Freedom from the nine to five. The one thing they're always looking for is autonomy. So that I can do what I want to do when I want to do it myself. So that my work fits around my life rather than trying to squeeze my life around the corporate grind, the day job that I mentioned a couple of minutes ago. There are loads of people. I suspect most people would love to do their own thing. Most people never will, not because they are afraid, but because the little decisions they would have to make to start down that road would make them feel, once again, uncomfortable. 
That is assuming they have got past the earlier hurdles of believing that they could actually do something and make money from it themselves. The chances are that because they are operating from a conceptual self that only sees the flaws, the chances are that they will never have even got past the first hurdle. So, so they'll make a decision to stick with a job that they hate or stick working in a place where they don't like their boss. And these aren't isolated incidents. If you believe all the surveys over the last 30, 40, 50 years, two thirds of people don't like their job. 90 something percent of people claim to have been bullied at work at some stage. Why put up with that? Well, actually from the conceptual self's perspective and from the evolutionary mind's perspective, I'll put up with it because at least I'm surviving. At least I'm making it from one day to the next. I'll put up with it because my comfort zone isn't so uncomfortable that I've hit rock bottom. That's another interesting point. Most of the people over the years, up to the time I launched the online program, so I was obviously reaching out to a far larger potential audience, but most of the people that I met when I was practicing as a psychologist initially and holding these face-to-face -face workshops, most of the people who I met, I met because they had hit rock bottom. In other words, they had had something thrust upon them. They actually had to make a decision. They actually were already so far outside their comfort zone that they were looking for a new comfort zone. They actually had to do something. People who had perhaps lost their jobs, people who were made redundant, people who had had a major health scare. And I've worked with plenty of people who have had major health scares. And the realization has subsequently dawned on them that the major health scare was the result of their making previous decisions based on the nonsensical hoops that this conceptual self makes you jump through. Let me give you an example. I know I'm under pressure at work. So I put that through my conceptual self sausage machine and what goes in as pressure at one end of the machine comes out as stress at the other end of the machine. Okay, now I know I'm suffering from stress. There's decades of research that tells us that if you're suffering from stress, you are, every moment that you're suffering from it, increasing your own heart rate. If you're suffering from stress, every moment you're increasing your blood pressure. That's why the World Health Organization says stress will kill more people in the developed world in the 21st century than anything else, COVID included. The death toll from COVID, though tragic and huge, pales into insignificance in comparison to the number of people who are dying from what the World Health Organization calls the pandemic of the silent killer, hypertension, high blood pressure. If I'm under stress, my body is pumping into my cardiovascular system, LDL, fatty bad cholesterol, that will clog up the cardiovascular system and kill me or lead to some of the life-changing incidents, the rock bottoms that I mentioned a couple of minutes ago. If I'm suffering from stress, I'm also going to mess up my digestive system and my immune system. And the terrible thing is that stress is caused by the choices and decisions that the conceptual self thrusts upon me. A lot of these people know that they shouldn't be doing that job. 
that is leading to stress. Or an awful lot of people know that they could take a different attitude to their job. As I've said to many people over the years who are under pressure or stress at work, you have two choices here. The choices are very simple. Number one, you leave your job and find something else. In other words, you change job. Or number two, you change your mind. You change your attitude about your job. You stop pumping LDL, fatty cholesterol into your body. You stop raising your heart rate. You stop raising your blood pressure. Now, the interesting thing about the five symptoms of stress that I've just mentioned, all of which will shorten your life, by the way, is that meditation that I'm always banging on about will do the exact opposite to your body as what stress does to your body. Meditation drops your heart rate substantially. I was just talking to somebody a couple of days ago who said that she was meditating with her Fitbit on and she was shocked in the best possible way to find that her heart rate had dropped by over a third in the 10 minutes that she was meditating. I was talking to a client a couple of months ago who had open heart surgery as a result of a triple bypass caused by stress. Well, triple bypass wasn't caused by stress. The cardiovascular issue that led to the triple bypass was caused by stress. This guy was put on heavy tablets to moderate his blood pressure. After he started meditating, the dose was halved. After six more weeks, his consultant said, can I have some of what you're having because you're regulating your own blood pressure? But better still, after his surgical intervention, he was told he needed to get his fatty cholesterol down from above five to between three and four. After meditating for just eight weeks, his cholesterol had dropped to 1.5. You need to change how you make your decisions. You need to stop the conceptual self insisting that you stay in your not too uncomfortable comfort zone until it gets too much for you and you maybe fall down dead. You're certainly as good as dead if you're operating from the conceptual self as things are because you ain't living your life. You're going through the motions every day, largely living the same version of hell every day. And it, it couldn't be heaven for the simple reason that you're living in the past to the stuff that was done to you in the past, not the stuff that was done for you. You're going around in ever decreasing circles and disappearing down a rabbit hole. The rabbit hole of thought, the rabbit hole of repetitive thought. We've talked about that before and how the thoughts in your own head run on a loop and are a repeat performance every day. So your life is a repeat performance every day, but at least you survive. You need to stop letting the conceptual self make up your mind for you. Why? Most importantly, the real you, not the guy you think you are or the girl you think you are, knows what decisions are best for you, knows how to make those decisions and knows how to carry out the related saying and doing. Why? Because the real you, housed in the subconscious mind, housed in the subcortical brain, is designed to enable you to do just what you need to do to get to where you want to go. Free of the constraint of thinking that what you might need to do would make you feel uncomfortable. In other words, 
as we talked about a number of weeks ago, you start surprising yourself. You start doing things that you thought you couldn't do. The key word in that sentence is thought. You thought you couldn't do it and you were used to allowing your thought mind, your thinking mind, rule the roost. The thinking mind knows nothing. It certainly knows absolutely zero in relation to what is going on today. So how in God's name could it enable you make any clear and proper decision? How could it enable you choose the right way to jump or choose the right thing to say or actually choose to say what you know is the right thing to say? It'll always hold you back, always. You know, I've, I've had clients, I still have these clients actually, but I've had clients who had major career decisions to make. I remember one particular individual who had the opportunity for an enormous career progression it would have had implications for her, her work-life balance, I suppose, the easiest way to put it, and her two young children. And she had come up with a spreadsheet. It was like a balance sheet of pros and cons and pros and cons. And I said to her, that is not the way you make a decision. You're thinking things through. You're using your thinking mind. Your thinking mind is going to end up making you make the wrong decision. But she persisted. So she had her debits and credits on her balance sheet, on her spreadsheet. And eventually I said to her, how did the debits and credits stack up? She said, they're exactly equal. So I'm back where I was in the first place after three weeks of procrastination and annoying myself about it. And they're looking for an answer. I said, what feels right? Now, that is the key question. People come to me all of the time and they say, should I do this or should I do that? Should I say this or should I say that? How will I deal with a wayward family member? How will I deal with the nonsense? This is, this is a really difficult one for a lot of people because a lot of people live in dysfunctional families. And that should not come as a surprise because if Harvard is correct in saying that 96% of people are not in control of their own mind, it's the other way around, their automatic conceptual selves are in control of them, which is a definition of at the very least dysfunction, if not lunacy. So if 96% of people are dysfunctional, what are the chances of finding a functional family? Seriously. Are there statistical probabilities of this at all? No, as some other client said to me a couple of weeks ago, I walked into a boardroom, the same boardroom I've walked into for the last seven or eight years and the last six years before I met you. And there are 12 people in the room and I look at them and I'm saying to myself, what's the statistical possibility of there being one person who is actually psychologically present in the room? What is the statistical probability of this group of people being functional? You know the answer to that. So, sorry, that, that was a slight digression, but it's an important digression because all the dysfunction in the world comes from people living from their conceptual selves, or should I say existing through their conceptual selves. So, coming back to the family issue, you know, an awful lot of people have said to me over the years, how will I deal with this situation? And I said, you'll do what feels right. But what will I say if so-and-so says this, this to me or that to me? And I keep saying to them, you'll say the right thing. They'll say, how will I know what the right thing is to say? And what I keep telling them is, you will just know when you are fully present. Because when you are fully present, you've disengaged the part of your brain that enables 
the dysfunctional conceptual self function and get in your way. In other words, let's come back to decision making because that's what this podcast episode is all about. You need to stop the conceptual self making your decisions for you. Once you stop that and you do it through meditation, we've explained that again just a minute ago, albeit in a slightly different way. Once you do that, the parts of your brain, the insula, the amygdala, and the hippocampus in the subcortical brain, these are the decision-making mechanisms in the brain. They do it without thinking about it. They do it on the basis of what feels right, and they do it on the basis of what feels right related to what you are really, in your heart of hearts, trying to achieve. These three parts of the brain do this effortlessly. It is what they do. It is what they were designed to do. Why don't you let them do it? Why don't you take a step back from torturing yourself about any decision you have to make or any goal you want to set for yourself or anything you know you need to say to somebody that might otherwise feel uncomfortable? Why don't you take a step back, take a few deep breaths, meditate, Mini meditate just before you meet these difficult people. If there's something, for example, as we talked earlier on about something that you have to say, turn up to the present moment. Let the real you make the running because you can trust the real you. You certainly can't trust your conceptual self. You've been listening to To Succeed, Just Let Go. To get involved, join me in my Facebook group, strangely enough called, To Succeed, Just Let Go. And for more information, visit www.willie-horton.com.